Hi, I'm Umushu. And I'm Lindsay Claiborne, and you're listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode. Today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Hausman. She is the Associate Veterinarian at the Denver Zoo. Hi, Jen. Hi. Okay. What is it that you do at the Denver Zoo? Well, I am one of their veterinarians, and as most people know of veterinarians that they bring their dog or cat to, um, I specialize in zoological medicine, meaning at the zoo, I I see anything, any of the animals that is at the zoo. So I will treat and be the veterinarian for anything um, in the collection from the fish to the frogs to the reptiles to the birds to you know, obviously the large mammals that most people think of. Um, So I take care of and manage the health of all the animals within the zoo. And on any given day, how many different types of animals or how many animals do you see? Um, It can really vary. Uh, From day to day, we may have a planned procedure, which is an animal that we know needs a routine exam or a hoof trim or something to check up on. Um, But many emergencies do pop up throughout the day. Um, You know, someone gets you know, a capuchin gets in a fight with another capuchin, I have to go see that, or, you know, a fish is not looking so good. So it can really uh, run the gamut on any single day on what we're seeing um, between like a routine health exam on a tiger uh, to spaying a lizard. Um, so it can be almost anything. Um, how, it's such a wide variety. How do you even, like, how are you prepared to treat all so many different types of animals? That is a very good question because there is definitely a lot to know. So um, as a veterinarian, I went to vet school and vet school traditionally focuses on, you know, small animals. So your dogs and your cats, um, horses uh, or livestock. So, you know, cows, sheep, goats, um, kind of the production animals. And then there's other specialties like mine, the zoo specialties that are kind of fit in there. And honestly, a lot of zoo medicine is um, taking what we know from animals that have a lot more um, study and research behind them, like the dogs, the cats, the horses, the cows, and then we extrapolate from those into the other species that we don't know as much about because you know a giraffe has a very similar anatomy to a cow so if I know something is true in a cow I can kind of take that knowledge and expand it to say fit what I need to do with a giraffe in most cases this works it doesn't always work because you know all species are very different Um, and some animals are very unique and special in their physiology. But I went to vet school to learn how to take care of kind of the traditional species. And then after that specialized, uh, meaning I did an internship and then residency in zoo medicine specifically. And what does a residency in zoo medicine entail? Um, So actually, most people don't realize this, but um, the veterinary world mimics and mirrors the human medicine side very, very closely. So veterinary school is four years, just like human medical school is four years. And veterinary school is usually 
two to three years of lecture-based learning, you know, anatomy labs, that sort of thing, and then one year in clinics. And then to specialize, you can do an internship, which is a one-year training program afterwards. And then a residency is a three-year training program that's even more specialized than an internship. So, um, I actually, because zoo medicine is unfortunately a little competitive, um, because there's a lot of people that want to work with our species. Um, I did vet school, then I did a one-year internship in small animal medicine. So I started first in kind of the basics, got my foundation, learned really a lot about, you know, the dogs and cats and everything that we know the most about, essentially. And then I did a one-year zoo-specific training internship at the Maryland Zoo in Baltimore, and then a residency program in just zoo medicine, where I kind of filled in all that other knowledge about the other species I hadn't gotten to um, experience or learn about yet for three more years before becoming um, a vet at the Denver Zoo. All right, this may be a silly question. Do you think those of us that have no veterinary training would be surprised at how similar such diverse animals are, or or are there really giant disparities? I think most people are surprised with how similar they are, because um, there are very big differences, but the only way I can do my job, essentially, because there are so many different species, is through those similarities. And, you know, the way we practice medicine is, is you know, for the different species is actually very similar. I mean, even if it's a bird that I put under anesthesia, I am still going to intubate that bird just as, you know, human doctors intubate humans when they're under anesthesia. And it's the same principle that we use in the same method. We just have to use different size tubes because the trachea in a bird is a much, much smaller trachea than a trachea in a human. But it's the same concept and same principles that we're using. Um, I think what throws people off is when they start getting into maybe the species they don't understand as much, like how I perform veterinary medicine for a fish, because obviously they have gills, for example. (laughs) So (laughs) people always ask me, how do I do anesthesia in fish? And that's not with gas, like, you know, say, you know, humans may have gas anesthetic fish, we actually dissolve the drugs in the water and then run the water with the drugs over their gills to make them go to sleep. Oh, wow. Um, so it's it's the same principles and we just have to adjust them for each different species kind of physiology and needs. Now at this point is sort of our knowledge of the different species at the zoo complete enough that you know, you're not really guessing at certain procedures or what to do? You know, there are so, part of the thing I love about my job is that there is such diversity and they always, the animals always keep me guessing, to be honest, because there's so many of them and they're so different that even if it's a species we may know quite a bit about, say it's like an African dog. So it's very similar to a domestic dog, you know, they can still come up with things that we just don't know. Um, And in that way, there's so much we can still learn. And it's kind of exciting in that way that, you know, there's still a lot of things that we can do research on that we can understand their diseases and treatments that um, that much better um, through understanding them more. So we do know quite a bit 
to be able to perform and take care, you know, perform veterinary medicine for them and keep them very healthy. But to be honest, with the vast number of species that are out there, there's still a lot we don't know about some of their diseases they tend to get, um, how best to treat them, and kind of the underlying cause of some of these diseases. You know, is it all genetic? Is there some dietary components? These are the things we're still trying to understand about the species we have. I'm going to rewind a bit. Um, when did you decide that, that being a veterinarian and or a zoo veterinarian was what you wanted to do? Did you fall into it? Did you just sort of start want to do this since you were two years old? What? How, how far back does it go? Um, I'm not one of those people that wanted to be a veterinarian when I was really, really little. Um, I actually, what I knew is I really liked animals. And in high school, I found that I, in class. I just really liked learning the biology of the different animals and their differences and how they all compared. And in high school, I was very lucky. I grew up in the Bay Area in California, and there's the Marine Mammal Center there. And it is a place where they rehabilitate wild seal sea lions um, that are sick and re-release them back into the wild. And they do a lot of work with volunteers that help them in this mission. And I actually was a high school volunteer there. And that's when I learned that there are vets that treat things other than dogs, cats, horses, um, and goats and cows. And that's when I first realized that there are these amazing vets that treat all these strange and unique species and that I could continue to learn about all these different animals and their unique physiology, um, but at the same time then use that knowledge to make them healthier, to, you know, cure them of whatever is ailing them, that kind of thing. And that's what really kind of drew me into veterinary medicine at that time. And then I went to college and studied biology and started shadowing more vets to um, prepare for veterinary school. And that just kind of solidified even more that I wanted to go into more of a zoo setting um, with the kind of more exotic, non-domesticated animals. I have a question for you about zoos, because you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, sea lions and the rescue operations. Um, I have mixed feelings about zoos. Um, I know a lot of people do, and you've got people on both sides. How do, how do you feel about zoos as a whole? I mean, obviously you're employed by one, <laughs> but, and there's all varieties of zoos and, and how they treat their animals. But do you sort of, how do you see that debate? So I would say, you know, if we lived in a perfect world that where we didn't have habitat destruction, and poachers and climate change and things like these that are threatening animals around our world, then we wouldn't need zoos. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world and we have many factors that are threatening animals and species diversity around the world. And so zoos, in my mind, play a really important part in this because we are And these animals are the ambassadors to the public. So I watch Grey's Anatomy quite a bit. And they're always talking about, you know, these special, uh, about sort of surgeries on on babies and children. And they don't have the tools because they need to manufacture them that small and they don't do all that kind of stuff. So when you had mentioned, um, you know, 
the, in a, you know, innovating birds or, or for general anesthetic. Um, are these tools that com- specific medical company, de- medical device companies make, or do these have to be manufactured in-house? Like, how does that work? Um, they actually, there are medical companies that make, um, like, as the example, intubation, um, ET tubes, um, for many different size animals. So they actually do make really, really tiny tubes, um, that can go in, um, rabbits, small birds, that sort of thing. Um, and they also make really, really big tubes. I mean, like, giant, giant tubes that will fit in an elephant. Um, so they are very specific companies that make these. It's not just any company, but they are out there and they do make these. And then we still sometimes run into animals where even our tiniest tubes don't fit. And then we have to get creative and use other things, um, that aren't, you know, mass produced, um, in their place. Are you telling me you're playing MacGyver in the in the vet room in the back of a zoo? Going, All right, yes, that zoo. does happen. Um, <laughs> MacGyver is our mascot uh, because that's because these animals are so varying in size and needs that sometimes what you have for one is not going to work for another. And so you sometimes have to become very, very creative to overcome these obstacles to get the best care for these animals possible. And it's not always just with the equipment. Sometimes it's, well, we have this animal that we need to get this medication into, but this medication or this animal, you know, doesn't, you know, speak English and we can't explain to it. It needs to come over and eat this nasty tasting medication to feel better. So we have to either, you know, train it to accept the medication. We have to hide it in its favorite food, or sometimes we have to, you know, dart it with the medication if it really needs that medication and doesn't want to take it. So we have to kind of fit through all these different situations um, especially it gets more exciting especially it's a very social animal and you're trying to get one specific animal it's meds and it's not say the most dominant animal that will because the dominant animal will take all the good treats for itself and maybe you can't put the medication in the best treats because the dominant one's going to steal it all while well, you're trying to slip the treats to the subordinate animal who really needs the medication. <laughs> it seems so there's like all these strange things. Here. A little bit, a little bit, for sure. Do you have a favorite animal? I usually say my favorite animal is the one I just worked on most recently because I actually do really like working on all of them. Some of the ones people find strange that I like so much are I actually really like working on frogs and actually really like bats. Um, and that's probably not what most people <laughs> think when they, <laughs> when they think of their um, favorite animal choices from the zoo. Why, why frogs and bats? Um, one, frogs are just I, I honestly think beautiful. Um, they just have the amazing coloration and diversity mm-hmm. that can be found is just awesome. And um, I worked a lot with um, some fruit bats and some vampire bats, and I grew to like them quite a lot. They have a lot of personality, um, and they actually do have cute little faces that most people 
don't know. Um, and vampire bats are not that scary, I promise. Oh, wait, no, wait a minute. Wasn't there just a story out about how vampire bats have gotten a taste for human blood? Didn't I just read that somewhere? <laughs> uh, I have not read that. Oh, I mean, okay. they can bite humans, but... I read that somewhere, uh, just to scare Moon slightly more. <laughs> this is why I don't go out into nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you go to zoos. That's true. The vampire bats, I promise, are contained at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> How do you learn to, like, to, to deal with, I mean, obviously you learn the medicine just, like, by going to mm-hmm. veterinary school, but how do you learn to sort of deal with the, the species, you know, face to face, hand to hand, all the sort of social etiquette and between human and animal or whatever that, that goes with that seems like a whole second education you'd need. Well, I rely very, very heavily on um, the keeper staff at the zoo because they're the ones that work every single day with these animals and they know these animals so well. And they are the ones that are coming to me and saying, you know, um, this animal just doesn't look quite right. You know, she's just not eating quite as much as she usually does. You know, her feces consistency isn't just not what it normally is. It's a little clumpy. You know, very subtle things that they pick up because they work with these animals every single day. So they are kind of my eyes and my ears, and I couldn't do my job without them. Also, they are very good at, you know, working with these animals and training and handling if it's a species that can be handled safely. And so they usually are able to get me very close looks. You know, they train these animals to assist essentially in their own medical care. Like, for example, the lions are trained to accept hand injections, and that can be an injection of uh, antibiotic, pain medication, or even induction for anesthesia. They're trained to present all of their feet the in, uh, show the inside of their mouth, um, all these different things, and even voluntary blood draws. So if there's an animal that I am worried about, and I can talk with them, and I can say, okay, what can we do using the training that's, say, already in place before to answer some of these questions about what we may be concerned about with this animal before we even have to, say, and fully immobilize a lion to do, you know, further diagnostics. Do you have like a, a workflow? Like the goal is to never knock them out unless you have to. Right? Is it that, that kind of essentially I mean, it's sort of the I same mean, thing with humans, right? So yeah, I mean, there is a lot we can do before we do full anesthesia. Sometimes we just need to do that because there is too many diagnostics, or the training isn't going to um, get us as far as we need to answer urgent medical questions about this animal's care. Um, and so we can definitely you know, do full anesthesia on many different animals very safely. Um, but we definitely try not to if we don't have to. Um, and that's what training uh, with these animals and working with them to engage in their behavior is so important in zoo medicine. Do you deal with um, uh, the, the keepers in terms of the lifestyle of animals, so sort of diet or habitat or what? other animals they're near? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the keeper staff, you can almost, the keeper staff and the animal management team, they are mainly on the husbandry side. So they 
their daily lives is focused on, you know, providing that animal with, uh, you know, great diet and clean environment and enrichment and training and all these things to make their quality of life really, you know, great on a, on an everyday basis. And then I come in, um, for, you know, maintaining um, that health so that they can enjoy their life, whether that's through, you know, preventative vaccines and deworming and those things. And then, of course, I come in when there is more of a medical concern, like so-and-so's limping, um, someone broke a tooth, that sort of thing. Um, and just so you do know that, you know, the zoo does have a nutritionist um, that reviews all the diets to make sure everyone's getting as healthy and complete a diet as we can provide and that we want for them for um an example do you you've got to have i mean i <laughs> i don't know if you can talk about them but you're you, waiting for stories i'm waiting, I'm waiting for like, some, like yeah exactly you've <laughs> got to have some like really off the wall stories about either trying to medicate a, a you know monkey that's giving you a hard time or or you know something some something weird i mean i, I can only imagine um, yeah, I just have to think of them. Um, <laughs> I, I always joke with um, my friends that my husband's better at telling some of my stories than I am because he usually remembers all the really good ones. Um, There's whereas, just so many. They yeah. all run together. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, well, well. Has there ever been an especially difficult animal that you've had to deal with? Well, they all pre present their own unique challenges. Um, here, I'll use this one as an example. So we have striped hyenas at the zoo. And on Christmas Day, the striped hyenas got a toy. A brand new toy. They'd never had it before. They had a great time playing with it on Christmas Eve. Christmas morning, we, it, you know, we're at the zoo every day of the week because the animals are there every day of the week. So we have to provide them care every single day. So we were there checking on them and uh, the keepers reported to me that, uh, that Spike the hyena unfortunately was really not feeling well. He was vomiting. He was um, vocalizing in great discomfort. Uh, and I went down to look at him and I could tell right away that he felt really, really bad. Um, and that we'd likely have to do an emergency procedure to anesthetize him and see what was going on. And of course, the keepers did tell me that morning that they found that toy that they had just given him. And unfortunately, he had broken off pieces of it and they couldn't find the pieces, which most likely meant he swallowed them. So just like, you know, a golden retriever that sometimes eats your socks that you don't want him to and then has an obstruction, our hyena had managed to do the same thing. <laughs> so we had to anesthetize him on Christmas Day um, and we did x-rays and ultrasound and confirmed yes he had eaten a large amount of his toy and it was stuck in his stomach. Thankfully it hadn't gone to the rest of him, um, I mean the rest of the intestine. I right. will say, but we had to do emergency surgery because he had eaten such a large volume, we couldn't remove it with just the scope. So we had to do surgery on him. So we opened his abdomen, we opened his stomach, and we pulled out 
a massive amount of this toy. And then with it, of course, all the grass he decided to eat to try to make himself vomit from after eating the toy and his breakfast from that morning which he had eaten before he realized he didn't feel well and pretty much (laughs) many other things um so and then we had to sew him back up and recover him and what's tricky is you know hyenas of course are kind of dangerous and you know don't allow you to really touch them or at least we can touch them maybe very briefly through a fence with training, but I can't like tell him to lay still and not run around and not lick his incision site because now he had a very large incision on his belly, and I cannot put an e collar on a hyena. Nope, no, because no, <laughs> no, he would just eat that as well, and then we'd be back where we started. Oh, no. um, so you can't do that. So I basically have to sew him up in such a way that you know, he's double protected. If for some reason he does go and lick his incision a whole lot. So we make sure all of our incisions are in suture and everything is kind of doubled layered in essence. Um, And then we have to wake him up and hope to God he takes all his pain meds and his antibiotics and everything orally afterwards because uh, we can't make him unless we anesthetize him again. So, but thankfully he was a very, very good boy. And as soon as he woke up, he not only decided not to lick in his incision, but to take all his meds. Um, So we were very lucky in that um, example, but you know, he is a dangerous animal. So it's not like I can go in there and tell him, no, don't lick that now. Um, (laughs) I'm still picturing the cone of shame on the hyena. Yeah, it does not work. (laughs) Here's a question. I mean, obviously, you know, the the toy was something that you gave to him, um, but and that didn't work out. But I got to imagine that same kind of stuff happens in the real world. Oh, yeah. And and they just die? Or what? How does (laughs) that happen? Um, if he could have vomited up, he would he have been, been fine. fine. But unfortunately, he had eaten. It was, it was ended up being kind of having a fibrous component to it, and it made a giant wad uh, in then, his stomach that he yeah. couldn't get up. And so, and all of our animals, of course, have a list of toys they are and are not allowed to get. And right. that of toy, of course, immediately got pulled from that list and is never to be given back to a hyena ever again. Right. Um, because. And that's the funny thing is, you know, we look through and double check everything that we give the animals to make sure that, you know, they can't tear it apart. They can't eat it. And they still manage to do things that we think that they cannot do. And somehow they manage to tear apart something because they're, you know, that strong and that smart that they can just unfortunately sometimes get themselves into trouble. (laughs) I mean, that's a good story. I mean, I'm just curious if there's ever sort of been something that you're sitting there going, I don't understand how this happened. Whether it's, I don't, you know, because these animals are well taken care of and they're protected in a way that they're not given, like you said, they're not given toys that are supposed to be problematic or, you know, but, but everyone, I feel like there's got to be some example of like, you know, a rhinoceros with its horns stuck in a melon oh, or something like oh, that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yes. Um, I was working at um, a zoo. This wasn't Denver Zoo. This was one before I went here and I unfortunately got the call that, um, our giraffe had managed to knock a hay feeder off the wall. And then she proceeded to step in the hay feeder. And so the hay feeder was then stuck on her ankle like a giant anklet. And this was really, really bad. 
(laughs) Because, you know, a giraffe is very, very large. And, you know, we can't just go in there and make her lift up her foot and pull it off. And actually, giraffes are, uh, because of their anatomy and their shape, it's, um, it's more risky to put them under anesthesia. Just because of their size, they can hurt themselves just when they're laying down in induction. And um, their anatomy, actually because of their blood pressure and the size of their neck and their physiology, you have to keep their head and neck elevated during anesthesia. Otherwise, it throws their blood pressure completely off because their heart is built to pump blood up their neck as they're standing and they're so tall. So you can drastically change their blood pressure just by dropping their head down to, say, lie flat with their body which is a position they would pretty much never be in normally. So do they sleep standing up? Um, they can sit down, and usually their head's still up. <laughs> so they'll okay. still lay down, but they don't go fully lateral. You know. Huh. So th- there's very unique things about that that make anesthesia in them very, very concerning. And so we were looking at her going, oh, dear God, what are we going to do to get this thing off? And in the meantime, like, we don't want her to freak out that she has a giant anklet on and hurt herself that way. So the end of the story is, is very nice. We um, sedated her with just a little bit of meds to keep her calm while preparing for anesthesia. And she actually managed to step out of the anklet herself. So we didn't have to anesthetize her just to cut it off. But it is one of those things of like, how did you manage to knock this thing off the wall and then step in it just perfectly? And thankfully she didn't even cut herself doing she, all She had this. no idea what happened. She, no. She comes back and, being full consciousness and is like, why are you looking at me? Yeah, what pretty much. Um, and as much as I love giraffe, they are not the brightest species. So <laughs> I'm, I'm googling sleeping giraffes. Ah, yes, excellent. Um, it what which if you're you like you know you said you like frogs and bats, but are there mm-hmm. any species sort of that have surprised you or that you find to be entertaining or or just what you sort of unexpectedly enjoy working with them or enjoy you know watching them. Um, that is a very good question. Unexpectedly. Um, because there's all the favorites, right? You know, like, oh, everybody likes the lions or everybody, you know, but but you deal with so many different kinds of species that I wouldn't even think of it. I was like, oh, I forgot you had, you know, hyenas (laughs) or otters or whatever it is. Well, this is going to sound a little bit funny, but um, one species that I kind of love and hate working on at the same time are guinea pigs. And you might go, why is she talking about guinea pigs? But actually, the Denver Zoo has eight guinea pigs that we have for education classes. So zoos do have some of the, you know, rabbits, ferrets, things like that um, to help educate children, things that they can actually touch safely. Mm -hmm. Um, So, (laughs) and I am trained to take care of them as well. And guinea pigs, I enjoy because they are very cute and very silly and even if you're just saying hello to them, make the little weeping noises that that they're scared, even though you're just petting them. Um, versus they make the same noise, even if I'm about to poke them with a needle because I'm trying to draw blood. Um, <laughs> they are just kind of silly and 
a little bit of drama queens no matter what. But the, also the thing I don't like about them and find a great challenge and kind of reward when it goes well is they're unfortunately a prey species. So when they get sick, they tend to hide it from us until they're very sick. And then when they're very sick, I'll, they get so stressed out sometimes because they're you know, in the wild, they're going to be eaten by almost anything that comes across them, that they don't always respond well to medical treatment just because they, in a way, sometimes give up because they're just so overworked about it. So they can be a challenge um, for a veterinarian to take care of, for sure. That's interesting. And, and And they're like that, even the ones that are people have as pets, they just stress themselves out to the point of yeah, they, um, though, you know, we've kind of domesticated them, though, of yeah. course, they were kind of more domesticated for a food source, um, they can still be um, kind of difficult to work with. And their GI tract, unfortunately, is built to always be running, and they are built to always be eating. And so if they stop eating, they get very sick very fast. And if you can't start their GI tract going again, um, because it is meant to do like one thing. They are one giant GI tract, essentially. Um, I'm not kidding you. Their lungs are like tiny compared to the rest of their body in their GI tract. Um, but if you can't get that, they can pass away very, very quickly. So it can be a frustration and challenge, but also very rewarding when you have a patient that does well. I mean, I had one guinea pig that unfortunately she liked to make bladder stones. Um, and I had to take her to surgery three times, but she was amazing trooper. I've never met a guinea pig like her. Um, she, within two hours of every single surgery, was up and eating immediately. <laughs> she was the most indestructible guinea pig I have ever met. She's um, my spirit animal. <laughs> and she was one of my favorite patients. <laughs> so. um, okay, so this is going to sound odd, but I'll bring it back to you and make it relevant. So when I, sometimes during the day, I will code in different programming languages. So I'll start with C and then do Java and then Python and do a bunch of different things. Okay. And sometimes it takes me a while to realize what programming language I'm in and have to switch to different notation. Do you find something similar uh, in your line of work if you have different animals of different, of sort of drastically different throughout the day? Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, I always have to keep in mind, you know, what species I am working on, what is the most recent literature on it, because uh, example of kind of switching between them is I may use the same drug, but on five different species, and their dosages will be different based on the species. And so a lot of time I double check myself by always looking up the dosage because I'm always afraid of that one time that I misremember the dose for a different species that is actually a toxic dose for the species I'm currently working on. Um, So I tend to rather double check a lot of things that um, I am prescribing for animals simply that um, I don't misremember what that kind of species dosage is. How often does does the literature and or the, the common practice or the best practices, how often does that change? To be honest, there is literature being produced constantly 
about in for zoo medicine. As I said, there's so many different species and there's so many things we still don't fully understand. There is so much room for research and new ideas and trials of new things that there's literature coming out all the time. And this can be anything from the review of, you know, what is the most common causes of death in a certain species. Um, you know, just like in humans, we know a leading cause of death is heart disease. Well, when we look back at the records for great apes, yes, that is to completely mimicked in great apes, and their leading cause of death is actually heart disease as well. Or it can be a new study in looking at the pharmacokinetics of a drug. So, like I said, there are these drugs that I'm using in this species, and say they've done testing in cows, but I'm about to go use it in a kudu which is a ruminant, like a cow, but I can tell you no one has run the pharmacokinetics of this drug in a kudu before. So I have to use the cow species as my example, but at some point, hopefully, we will be able to run pharmacokinetics in all the different species so that we can pick up, you know, the slight species differences um, where we're able to provide the best care. So it can be anything in between about this and it's coming out all the time from different zoos are producing research, um, academic um, vet schools are producing research, um, and then you can't even, you know, you can't forget all the biologists and wildlife vets out there that are also pulling things in from non-captive animals. So are you doing, uh, any, or you or, or any folks at the Denver Zoo doing research or publishing? Um, so the Denver Zoo does do uh, a lot of conservation work and um, studies looking at um, animals that we have in captivity, but we're also supporting their conservation and studying what's affecting them in the wild. For example, um, the Cenarius vulture. We have them in captivity um, at the zoo, and then we also support... Um, a park in Mongolia that is part of their home range and we help biologists there study and understand what is threatening them there as well. So there's that kind of research going on um, across all zoos across the U.S. actually participate in conservation. And I think a lot of people don't know that. Um, because I think, unfortunately, we're just not that good about talking about it and sharing it with everyone. So there's that kind of research going on. But then there is also other research um, going on as well. And this can be anything from like a, writing up a really strange medical case that we saw or a new technique we used and sharing it with all our colleagues. Because every time because there's so much to know about these species, we do share a lot of knowledge with each other and we do call each other a lot. So if I have a case, say in a rhino, and we only have, you know, a few rhinos at our zoo, but there is another facility that breeds rhinos and has many more of them, I might call the vet at that facility and ask them specifically um, what they have seen recently and tried recently. And so there is a lot of sharing of knowledge. Um, there is, of course, um, other research as well going on, um, being published all the time at zoos. Uh, 
I cannot think of the most recent publication um, the Denver Zoo has done, but um, I did a lot of actual research before joining the Denver Zoo and hope to do some very soon in the future. uh, You said there's a lot of sharing. Is it competitive or is it all like you're in this together and let's, let's figure it out the best way we can? It's more we're all in this together because, like I said, there is so much that still needs to be fully explored that it's very hard to get too competitive about it because there are so many different species to choose from and so many different topics and ways to explore this that, um, you know, it's very hard to necessarily compete in the same way. Usually your research ends up um, helping each other. Um, So a lot of people have been doing research on... um, uh, NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in um, different species uh, because we use it a lot. This is like Advil right. for humans. Um, and we use it a lot because, you know, our animals, they get arthritis too. Maybe they trip and they get a little sore. So they need these meds. But of course, you know, just like if you take too much Advil or these other drugs, you can cause problems to yourself. So we don't want toxicity. So a lot of places will um, recently have been exploring um, what are the appropriate dosages for these in, say, rabbits and flamingos and ducks. And so like I said, there's so many different species that may be different in the way they metabolize drugs that most of these studies just complement each other um, and help us better take care of these animals rather than, oh, you chose the one species I was going to study as well. <laughs> <laughs> have any of these results that have come about um, led to uh, discoveries or insights into humans? Um, definitely, definitely they have. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I mean, like I said, the great apes, one of the leading causes of death in great ape species, and that's chimpanzees, bonobos, uh, orangutans, uh, gorillas, is heart disease. And so this mimics a lot of what we're seeing in human medicine. And actually, they kind of go hand in hand because they're not exactly the same disease that's happening. They're slightly different. But a lot of um, the research kind of overlaps each other as we understand the disease better in great apes. And we pull some of the stuff from human medicine. You know, human medicine can pull things from our research as well. Um, and so they kind of help each other. I have, I have one more question. Um, is there some animal or, or a process or something you want to try to do or, or work on or something like that that you haven't yet had the opportunity? Have you like always wanted to, I don't know, do something with an elephant or always wanted to, I don't know, I have no idea. <laughs> the options are so great, but is there some, something like that that you sort of always, have always looked forward to do and haven't done yet or want to do? Hmm. I guess for me personally, um, one of the greatest joys of being a zoo vet is kind of what I was talking about, that collaboration between the captive and conservation of wild species. And so many um, zoo vets that work with a certain species in captivity will also go out 
um, into the wild and help biologists and research of of that species in the wild to better understand them. And I personally haven't gotten to do that yet. And I would love to do that. Probably with any species, they'd let me do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To be honest. Um, And and that's just because I haven't um, been at this, uh, at the Denver Zoo that long yet. Um, And so that's what I would be really excited as kind of my next step to do um, because it's that wonderful bridge where you get to pull in you know the knowledge of what we perform you know the health that we care we can give to the captive animals and that knowledge we gain from working with them that we can pull and use to better understand what's happening in the wild and what diseases we're seeing in the wild species that are threatening them and then bring it back to our home to be able to educate people about these animals and what is threatening them and how they can do stuff to help them and protect them. Well, Jen, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for sharing your, your stories about giraffes getting ankle bracelets without knowing it and, um, and life at a zoo. Uh, we really appreciate you, you speaking to us. Thank you. Um, it's been a lot of fun to talk with you today. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts.